0: The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Hey, 1030. Hey. That was really weird. Hey, online. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, welcome to Fathom Church. (laughs) My name's Chris. Uh, I'm the pastor here. If I didn't get a chance to meet you, if you're online with us and you're a guest, we are so thankful that you're with us. Hey, would you grab your Bibles if you brought them? And I hope you did. Let's open them up to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9 is where we're going to be. You can open a phone or a tablet. We have black Bibles under every chair. You can open one of those up and that Matthew 9 will be found on uh, page 814. If you're online with us, you can find the Bible in any myriad of ways, even looking over to that one that's dusty on your shelf, grab that thing and let's get it open. Matthew 9 is where we're going to be today. Hey, as you are turning there, uh, I'm not that old, all right? Yeah, comparatively, all right? But uh, the older I get, let's just start right out the gate. You know, we're going hot from the gate, okay? The older that I get, the, the, the harder it is for me to remember things from my childhood, um, like my elementary days Like my daughter is going into first grade next year And it's hard for me to remember what first grade was like, like I just have a harder time more, the, the older I get The harder it is for me, for me to remember Those days But there are some memories And I don't know if this is just me But maybe this is a shared experience There are some memories that are just like seared In my mind and I can't get them out And one of them for me Was elementary gym class Uh, and specifically our PE teacher, Mr. Sampson, okay? Uh, Mr. Sampson was my PE teacher. There was actually somebody in the first service who also had Mr. Sampson as an elementary teacher, so that was uh, wild, but uh, Mr. Sampson, okay, Mr. Sampson was uh, the stereotypical 80s, 1980s PE teacher, all right? Uh, He had white sneakers, uh, triple-striped socks pulled up to his knees, Okay, he wore these short shorts with a slit up the side. I still have no idea what the slit's for. Okay, if you know what the slit is for, talk to me afterwards. But uh, short shorts, slit up the side, a a schmedium. That's not a small. That's not a medium. It's a schmedium polo shirt that was tucked into said shorts. Okay, uh, he had a whistle around his neck, a clipboard in his hands, and he wore a, a nondescript mesh back ball cap. That's Mr. Sampson, okay? Just to get him in, he's seared into my memory, okay? Mr. Sampson. And uh, when I was uh, a kid, we would play dodgeball in school. Uh, I, th- I don't know if they do this anymore, right? Like, we've got to protect those little snowflakes now, so I don't know. But it was vicious when, I mean, it was like vicious dodgeball, uh, sending people to go see uh, the, the health lady, the, the, yeah, the nurse. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> She's for another illustration another day, okay? But, um, but, but we played dodgeball, and when it came time to play dodgeball, Mr. Sampson would say this, all right, everyone against the wall, all right? That's how he would start, everyone against the wall, and then what would happen next? We'd pick teams, Okay? Now, here's how it works today. I've read, read this online, okay? Uh, today's educational climate will give gym teachers the, the opportunity to pick teams themselves so that students are able to expand their circle of friends, they don't feel ashamed or excluded, and all teams can be made fair. Okay? That's fine. Fine with me, okay? And it just ain't how it was for me, right? Mr. Sampson would say, everybody against the wall. And then here's what would happen, okay? He would pick the best two athletes and he would make them captain one and captain two. So you'd already know who his top two were, okay? Captain one and captain two, first and second captain. And then all the rest of us are standing there in this pressure-packed line up against the wall as they picked teams. And I don't know about y'all, okay? If you've been a part of the wall line, all right? But, but there were times when, when you're standing in that line and, and, and the numbers are, kids are starting to dwindle down and the anxiety starts to raise in your chest, it starts to crop up. And then they pick the kid with terrible asthma before you. You're like, he can run for like three seconds before he has to medicate. Like, why are you? And then, and then literally it's like you and a potted plant and you're last. And you're like, great. Is this, is this gonna be the rest of my life? And the answer is yes, it is, okay? I'm calling today's sermon, Picked Last. That's the title of our sermon today, Picked Last. We were all afraid of being picked last In gym class, and today's text in Matthew's gospel uh, is a fascinating account of Jesus actually picking Matthew. He, he chooses Matthew, he calls Matthew, he picks Matthew. The guy who wrote this very book, he's telling his story about when he was called by Jesus. And, and I think we are going to uh, come up against what I think is undoubtedly the, most, the, the least likely guy to be picked by Jesus, to become one of his 12 closest followers. So let's see what we're gonna, we're, we're gonna uh, learn in this text. Matthew chapter nine, we're gonna start in verse nine. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. All right, so we only have a few verses to get through today, but uh, we're taking it slow because there's a lot to mine out in each one of these verses. So in verse nine, Jesus, he's, remember, he is back on the Jewish side of the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. So he's around Jewish people and he sees Matthew, this man named Matthew, he's talking about himself in the third person, which is always enjoyable, right? He sees Matthew sitting at a tax booth, which means that Matthew's occupation is a tax collector. He's a tax collector, okay? Now, at this point in history, Israel is occupied by the Roman Empire. Rome is occupying Jerusalem and all the surrounding areas around Israel. And uh, so they're paying taxes, not only to the temple, not only to their people, but now they're paying taxes levied on them by the Roman Empire. And one commentator at this point estimates that um, the taxes could have been as high as 30 to 40 percent of your gross income at this point that the Roman or that the Jewish people were paying. And, and so tax collectors, they would sit in booths, normally at gates or uh, at major interchanges in the city, and, and, and they would collect taxes. But the interesting thing is how tax collectors got those jobs, That's the actual interesting part, okay? Because Rome would essentially farm out the duties of tax collecting to local residents in each city, and they would give the job to kind of the highest bidder. Whoever would pay them the most, they'd give the job to them. So literally, tax collectors would pay Rome to do the work of collecting taxes. Now, here's why they would do this. They would do it because tax collectors could charge an extra kind of commission on the top of your taxes, which essentially became their pay, okay? And, and, and it would ultimately make them considerably more wealthy than if they weren't tax collectors, especially depending on how dishonest they were, how much they would levy over top of the taxes that they were collecting. So tax collectors are despised at this time. They are actually despised all through history and even today, Right? We don't like tax collectors. I mean, I, my, my uh, last house, uh, our neighbors across the street, uh, we met them one day, and Marcy and I were outside. We were chatting with this guy, our neighbor. He's a great guy, really friendly, jovial, kind. We're just chatting him up, and I'm like, oh, so tell me about your family. Oh, your wife. Okay, what does your wife do for work? And, and, and his response was, oh, she, she, she works for the tax division of the IRS. <laughs> and like we walk away, and I'm like a pastor, you know supposed to be real holy or whatever. Walk away, I lean over to Martha. Like, we'll be sure to have them over for lunch. Like, you don't want somebody coming in and seeing all your stuff, right? Like a tax collector. Like, like we, it's, we don't like people who tax us. We don't like people who take our money, okay? And we say it tongue in cheek, but it's still, this, it's true today as it was then. We don't like tax collectors. Well, they were among the most despised people in the ancient world. And it's not just because they were collecting taxes. Okay, in this case, particularly, Tax collectors were were seen as traitors to their very countrymen. It's not just that they were collecting taxes for the man. It's that they were actually being traitors to their very countrymen. Okay, Matthew was a Jewish man. He's a Jew who paid Rome for the right to tax his own people, and he became wealthy because of it. Right? Are you starting to see why this guy would have culturally been picked last? Everyone hated tax collectors. I just can't get that home hard enough. And then Jesus, he says to this man, follow me. He says, follow me. Like that Jesus would call such a person to join his team is startling at the very least. It's shocking. I mean, this is, I mean, imagine this. Okay, the rift that this would have caused, even amongst the disciples, These Jews, the disciples, they would have hated tax collectors. And I mean, imagine this, Jesus calling Matthew. I just don't think we can overemphasize how unbelievably radical this would have been. But listen, Matthew's immediate obedience to Jesus' call is just as startling as the fact that Jesus calls him. I don't know if you caught that, but it says, Jesus says, follow me. And it says, he rose and followed him. Insinuating immediate obedience. Obedience. He leaves everything. And actually, Matthew probably left behind more than any of the other disciples to follow Jesus. He probably paid paid the highest cost of all the disciples. You see, as a tax collector, he would have been fairly wealthy. Certainly more wealthy than all these other disciples that Jesus calls. And and while the disciples who were mostly fishermen in the group at this point would have had the option to return to their fishing boats if they had wanted to, if this whole following Jesus thing hadn't panned out, they could have gone back and fished. Which actually they do, if you remember, in John 21, after Jesus is crucified, they go back out fishing. They don't know what else to do. But Matthew, on the other hand, he could never return to his former occupation. Literally, he he had to abandon everything to follow Jesus. I mean, we've said this for weeks now, but but what are you willing to pay to follow Jesus? Like he may be picking you for his team, but, but the question is, will you follow? He says, follow me. Will you leave everything and follow him? So that's all in verse nine. Okay, but the story continues. Let's see what happens next in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. All right. Matthew's account does not tell us what house Jesus is at, but Luke's account of the story tells us that this is Matthew's house. So Jesus sees Matthew at the tax booth. He calls him to follow him. Matthew immediately follows him and they head to Matthew's place to have a party. That's essentially what the story is going. They return to Matthew's house for a meal. And a quick aside here that I think is just, we don't wanna miss this church, okay? I think there's something for us here. You see, Jesus does not just call us to come and follow him with a portion of our lives. He doesn't just say, hey, follow me from your occupation. No, he, he, he says, I wanna go home with you. I'm gonna go to your. I'm, I called you at your place of business. Now let's go back to your house. Let's call your friends. Let's call your family together. I want you to transform every nook and every cranny of your life. See, he's already messed with Matthew's livelihood and his occupation and his social standing in the eyes of Rome's and in the eyes of Rome and in the eyes of the Jews. But now he's like, I want to go home with you. I'm gonna go to your place. See, I think this is an application point for us. Like, the question is. Where in your life have have you not let Jesus kind of invade? Like, what's that part of your life where, man, I love following Jesus with this section, but Jesus, why don't you just leave me this this little part of my life alone? I don't really want you to come into this section. Yeah, I've got a relationship with Christ, but, but has he come home with you? Maybe it's not home, maybe it's work. Has he gone to work with you? Has he broken into your, your friend groups or, or maybe your hobbies, the recreation you do? What about your sexuality? I and mean, what about the, the way you speak and communicate with people, your language? Has he, has he invaded your finances? Is he Lord over that? Like, have you brought him into every aspect of your life? We've seen this in Matthew chapters eight and nine. Discipleship is all encompassing. It is completely requiring. It costs everything you have to be his follower. So Jesus is at Matthew's house now. He's at Matthew's house, and Matthew, hear me, he must have been wealthy if his home was going to be big enough to host a gathering like this. This is another evidence that he's been lining his pockets with his countrymen's dollars to have a home like this. And, And so they're gathering together for a meal. Now, meals in this context are significantly different than meals are in our social context. These were important gatherings and occasions in the first century. And essentially a meal would define your peer group and social status. When you would dine together, uh, as a saying went in the ancient world, to share a meal is to share a life. To share a meal is to share a life. Okay, Sharing a meal, it was almost like an alliance with somebody. Essentially, it was a declaration that that person was being accepted into your group, into your social circle. And then you saw in the passage, did you notice who's at the party? Like who's with, you know, friends with tax collectors? More tax collectors. Ain't nobody else want to hang out with them. So they have a meal and it's Jesus and his disciples. And Matthew, this recently converted tax collector, More tax collectors and, oh, by the way, sinners. Just a general category of sinners. More sinners, more social outcasts, more hated individuals. I mean, it's a dinner of those picked last. That's what's going on here. But Matthew, he means this meal to introduce Jesus to his friends, to let him into his home, into his life. And I would bet to explain the change in his life, especially the fact that he's no longer working for Rome. He's getting his closest people together to say, This is the man, and this is who I'm following. I'm changing my life. Listen, do those around you, where you live, where you work, where you play, where you hang out, where you recreate, do they even know that you're a disciple? Do they even know? Have you let them know that you follow Jesus, and that's why you're a little different? And listen, you should be a little different. If you aren't, you're missing something, okay? I love this scene, but I also love the little detail that Matthew interjects in here that, that Jesus is accompanied by his disciples as well. It's not just Jesus who shows up at the party. It's Jesus and some disciples, okay? Not only is Jesus gonna go dine in fellowship with these, this, this questionable bunch, okay? But, but the very disciples, the ones who likely hate tax collectors. Jesus is bringing them into this process as well. And so it is with us again, church. Goodness, Jesus expects us to dine with tax collectors and sinners if we are his disciples. Who are the tax collectors? Who are the sinners in your life? I mean, this is one of the greatest tragedies of those of us who have been following Jesus for a while is that for so many of us, the longer we follow Jesus, the least, less often we actually dine with people who are tax collectors and sinners. This happens all the time. We, we lose, and lose kind of touch with people who, who Jesus would even have us minister to. He would want us to dine with. Like we talk about the Christian bubble Right? The longer you are a Christian, the more you kind of just get this bubble of Christians around you. And I would just point to this passage as a caution for us to kind of remember that Jesus' radical mission was to seek and save the lost and to use us to accomplish that mission. You, don't just get, you didn't just get saved for you. I mean, when was the last time you had somebody in your home who you knew did not love and worship the God that you love and worship. You shouldn't have to think too long about that. So I think this is partially a reminder for us to to share Christ, to be evangelists, okay? But there's more here. There's even more here. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, so enter the Pharisees into this story. Obviously, these guys are not invited to the meal. Even if they were, they certainly would not have shown up. I mean, to them, to the Pharisees, goodness, this whole thing would have been gross. It would have been dirty. It would have been dishonorable to go to a meal filled with tax collectors and sinners. Gentiles, oh, They would never show up. But why are they even there? Why are they even showing up there? Just like looking in the window, peering in, peeping Tom, right? Like what are they just creeping on the party? Like, I don't understand what they're doing there. Just hanging outside while Jesus and his disciples are eating with a herd of sinners. But they're keeping their watch on him. Beware this watchdog tendency church. They're just keeping their eyes on him. I mean, it's kind of a disturbing thought here. Why are these Pharisees even hanging out? But they are there. They're eavesdropping on the experience and obviously upset. They question Jesus, but they don't ask it to him. It says they asked his disciples. They don't want to approach Jesus. They want to approach his disciples and be like, hey, what's the teacher doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? Like maybe, I don't know why they're doing this. Maybe it's because Jesus has no time for these fools. I mean, that, that could be legit, but, but maybe they're just afraid to engage him. I mean, goodness, you know this to be true, but it's so much easier to talk about someone than it is to talk to them. It's so much easier to talk behind somebody's back or with a third party or, goodness, send a text or, or send an email. I mean, how bold are you behind your keyboard and your screen in a comment on Facebook? So much more bold than you ever are face-to-face with a human being. So they're chatting with the disciples about him, but Jesus actually overhears them. And it gets interesting. Look at verse 12. When Jesus heard it, so he heard the question, he then said, "Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous" but sinners. Okay. He hears the Pharisees questioning him. And Jesus gives three statements in those two verses uh, that kind of form an authoritative saying of Christ, which actually I think those two verses might be some of the most beautiful passages in the gospel of Matthew. So let's look at these three statements that he says, because I think they're really informative. The first thing that he says is a proverb kind of a proverbial statement around the first century that says those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So that's like a proverb. And it was common to the Near, uh, the near East in the first century, okay? The second uh, thing that he says is he, he quotes the Old Testament, He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So he quotes the Old Testament now. He's first quoted a proverb from their time. Now he's quoting the Old Testament. And then third, he makes a a kind of a ministry proclamation or declaration that this is why I have come. I I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So let's do a little bit of work on those three things because I think they're informative, okay? The first statement, as I said, it's a common proverb. It's used to talk about medical instances. Those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick. But Jesus kind of co-ops that and he uses it kind of metaphorically, allegorically to start talking about spiritual sickness now. So he's saying spiritually, he's starting to say strong and healthy and weak and sick. He's saying the, the strong and healthy are the Pharisees. The weak and the sick are the sinners and the tax collectors. And of course, he's not saying they're actually healthy, that the Pharisees are actually healthy. This is rather what I think he's trying to insinuate by co-opting this proverb. I think he's saying this, those who think that they're well have no need for a doctor. But those who know that they're sick, and they need it. They seek it. So that's the first statement is this proverb. The second statement though, he takes us, you need to know kind of rabbinic tradition to really see this, but but Jesus kind of jabs at the Pharisees at this point. He takes a jab, like stabs at them, okay? When he says, go and learn what this means. Okay, so those three words, go and learn, that's a rabbinic uh, statement that any rabbi would tell his his inferiors his students to like look at the text and go and learn what this means essentially you, you're not seeing this right you need to do some more research you need to study a little bit more go and learn what this means so he says go and learn what this what this, this means and then he quotes Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 which hear me the, the Pharisees undoubtedly knew these are the teachers. These are the religious elite. And so he kind of jabs at them. Hey, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes the, the passage. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What's happening in Hosea chapter six is um, the prophet is criticizing Israel at this point for following the letter of the law in their sacrifices, in their worship practices, slaughtering of animals, etc. They're following the letter of the law, but they're forgetting the heart of the law. Mercy, kindness, that's what the critique is. He's saying, I desire action, not simply external worship practices. A major New Testament ethic that will develop in Jesus' teaching is that the way that we treat others shows our true relation to God. God. Okay, by failing to have a heart of mercy towards sinners, the Pharisees are showing that they themselves are not right with God. We'll See this through the text. Then finally, the third statement, after quoting the Old Testament, he kind of sums up, Jesus kind of sums up what he's trying to do in his earthly ministry. And then as an extension of his disciples and us, the church. This is the ministry of Jesus' people. He says, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Again, this is al- uh, allegorical, okay? He's saying essentially, I've not come for those who think that they're righteous. You pharisees think that you're righteous, and I haven't come for that. I've come for those who know that they're sinners. They need a savior. So Jesus Jesus jukes them. Like mean, that's what he does. He just kind of throws them into a little bit of a shock because the Pharisees are like, hey, doesn't he know these are dirty people? And he's like, yeah, you're missing the point. You're missing the whole point of Proverbs, of wisdom from your current age, of the Old Testament, the very scriptures that you know and love. And oh, by the way, of me, the Messiah, the one who has come, my whole purpose is for this, to call sinners, to call tax collectors. So I'm trying to think of how to apply this to us this week as I'm kind of working through this text and and writing this, and I thought about it this way, okay? Uh, This spring, uh, my daughter Harper, who's five, she wanted to play soccer. She wanted to play soccer this spring. This is her first sport. She's not done any sports up to now. She wanted to do soccer, and hear me, I am pumped. Like, I'm really excited. Like, I want to be this, I'm kind of the crazy soccer dad already. I didn't know I had it myself. I'm just like screaming and yelling and running up and down the field with the girls. I love it, okay? I am thrilled. And so I went to her first game thinking, this is going to be awesome. I went to her first game, hear me, expecting soccer. Okay? Have you ever been to a five-year-old soccer game? Yeah, that's something entirely different. Right, that is not soccer. And at times, I mean, literally at times, I'm not sure some of the girls realize there's a game being played. <laughs> it's like they don't even know what they're doing. They're just there wearing the shirts and wearing the shin guards and kicking each other in the shins. Like, I don't know what's going on. Now, I see them. This is, I see, I, maybe this is different for boys and girls, but I'm not sure it is. The girls' soccer team, I see them in between each play. All, it's 3v3, three, three versus three. All three of our girls, after every play, they run together and hug each other. <laughs> I don't remember doing this as a boy. <laughs> it's gender differences, okay? I'm just saying that, okay? But, uh, and then, literally, we taught Harper how to play rock, paper, scissors. Um, you know, rock, paper, scissors. Okay, so she knows how to play that. Uh, the other day, while watching the game, okay, the other team is setting up to do a goal kick, and I see her and her friend on the field playing rock, paper, scissors during the game. And now I'm the crazy dad who's running and is like, pay attention, they kicked the ball, you're playing a game. And they're just like, you know, they're just playing their thing. I'm that dad now. And it's not just my girl, okay? I've been using your kids' stuff, okay? I, I, I used to go, before we had Harper, I would go to uh, my nephew's games. They would play Little League Baseball, and I would go to them. And I remember at one game a number of years ago, I was at this Little League Baseball game. And, and, and the left fielder on this opposite team, on the other team, this kid, all right, uh, the left, he, was, he was in left field literally and figuratively, okay? Uh, the left fielder, he had his glove on his face like a mask, okay? And he was picking flowers, spinning and throwing them in the air during the game. You're like, what is wrong with this kid? Whose kid is this? And then you meet the parents. You're like, nah, that explains it. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'll never forget, I was at a little league, I don't, maybe T-ball, maybe coach bitch game, whatever. I looked over at the third baseman, okay? Third baseman is laying face down in the dirt, okay? During the game, by the way, face down in the dirt, his arms to his side, and he's using the, the bill of his hat to, to make a mound, like dig a hole and make a mound of dirt in front of him. While the game is being played, he's doing this, okay? It's crazy. Now, hear me. After that baseball game, after each of Harper's soccer games, okay, the coaches will gather, like, the the kids around in a little huddle after the game, and and I overheard her coach say things like this. You girls did great today, okay? I'm so proud of you. You're great soccer players. And I'm hearing this, and I'm thinking, did you just watch the same thing that I watched? Like, are you kidding me? Were we at the same game? And, and literally, they had, they had asked me to coach, and I said, no, for this very reason. Like, it would not be a good thing for me to teach these little five-year-olds, okay? But I do wonder. I do wonder if God ever just looks at me, and, and to him, I'm just kind of laying face down in the dirt, just kind of digging my hole, just make him a little scoop right there in front of my face. And he's like, I'll pick that one. I'll pick him. And like an angel shows up and is like, are you sure? Because I'm not sure he has the basic intelligence necessary to win this thing. You know, I don't know if he knows that he's playing a game. And and I imagine God's just like, hey, do you want to be a demon? Because we can make that happen. All right, back off. I'm picking him. I'm picking him. Church. When God picks you and me, he does not start with the condition that we're in. He starts with what he will make us in Christ and he picks us. This is the good news of the gospel. God calls us to be disciples and then he makes us into one. And this principle of God picking those who, who the world would pick last is just carried all throughout the scriptures and into our thought theology, okay? I mean, so many people just utterly mistakenly think that their activity precedes their identity, that what they do for God is the reason why God loves them and shows them and delights in them. But listen, that's just bad theology, church. It is wrong theology. Activity does not precede identity. It's the other way. Your identity always precedes your activity. And that's what we're seeing here with Matthew. Matthew is picked by Jesus. His identity is changed. As Colossians says, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son. He is changed in identity. And then let's go to your house. Let's start working on this stuff. Let's go follow me. God chooses us and then God changes us. That order is incredibly important. Incredibly important. So today, listen, some of you need to accept the fact that Jesus is picking you. That he's calling your name, that you're not gonna get picked last, that it's not you up against the wall all by yourself and nobody wants you. He's calling you today and you need to respond like Matthew. You got to leave it all behind and follow him. I said this in the first service in person online. I'll say it again. Like, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord? We call that being saved or or being converted or being born again. Like like he might be picking you today. And listen, I just invite you. if If you hear his words, follow me. You can follow him today. Even if you're on lot, you can follow him today. But then for others of us in here, maybe we've been following him. Like you've already decided, I'm gonna follow Jesus, but maybe we've become a bit like the Pharisees. And don't be too quick to cast that off because, because you may have slipped into thinking that God picked you because you were great, because you're helpful. You make a really good player on his team because you can keep the rules really well. Because he saw something in you and he's like, yeah, I'm picking, I picked you because of your ability. I picked you because of your, your strengths. I picked you because, man, I really need you on my team or we're in big trouble. Listen, the fact, here's the truth. The empirical evidence that you are actually not worth picking is the fact that he picked you. He did not come to call the healthy He did not come to call the righteous. The fact that he picked you means that you are sick and you're a sinner. And he picked you. And he changed your identity from sick sinner to healthy and righteous follower of Christ. If he picked you, that's actually the evidence that you fit into the Matthew tax collector sinner category. I mean, I quote this verse often, and actually that's what we had read over us this morning. But 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Listen, that whole list of things, those who will not inherit the kingdom, none of that matters. You know what matters? The words, and such were some of you. Some of you need to repent for forgetting that you were Matthew. That you were a sinner waiting in line to be picked for dodgeball. That you were a kid with your face in the dirt, scooping up your pile and he still picked you. You need to remember that. And then finally, for all of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want us to see that, that Jesus is gonna bring us along in his mission to call sinners. This is intrinsically what it means to follow Jesus, is that he brings you along on that mission. Hear me, who is it in your life that you need to invite over for a meal and share why you're different. I know it's not sexy to talk about evangelism today. I know it's not. You know why? Because people will think you're weird. People will think, your neighbors will think you're weird. Your coworkers will think you're weird. It's not cool. Don't put your religion on me, bro. Like that's, that's normal in our world. But this is a call to evangelism intrinsically linked with Jesus' call for us to follow him. This is our call. So who is it for you? And I challenge you, legitimately, who is it that you need to have over for dinner? Fathom Church, may we stand in awe of the God who picked us to follow him. And may we be all the more courageous to share that hope with those who are sick and dying around us. This is the call. And there's no spectators in this sport. We're called to play. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for this story that, that even Matthew would be bold enough to share in his gospel. Lord, when you called him that day to follow you, do you think he had anything in his mind about writing down a gospel account that we would be reading 2,000 years later? you picked him. The most hated, the most despised, the one who was a traitor to, to your very people, and you picked him, and you called him, and you used him. Holy Spirit, I pray that be true of us. Many of us have been picked. Some of us, Lord, even today through the power of the Holy Spirit, you might be calling, you might be picking. I pray that response would happen. It doesn't need to be some sort of like recite after me prayer. But but if you, even even in this room, even online, if you feel like like Jesus is beckoning you to follow him, then you can just say, I follow you. I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to follow you. I want to leave behind whatever you would have me leave to follow. That could happen today, Lord. I do pray that that would be happening. And I do also pray for those of us who have slipped into some sort of lack of remembrance that you picked us last. From the last, you picked us. That you saw us far before we did anything for you and you saw who we could become and so you called us and you picked us in that state. Lord, would you do that and remind us of that more in our hearts today? Would you stir up in us a desire to worship you? If that doesn't stir up our affections that Christ picked us while we were at our worst, I don't know what will stir up our affections for you. So Lord, we wanna praise you, we wanna worship you for your goodness, for your salvation, and for the work you are gonna do uh, to us and through us. So bless, uh, Lord, Lord, bless these words, bless your, your word today. Let it bear fruit in our hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.